Hey guys, it's Stefan, and this is a special edition of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. Today, we revisit our interview with filmmaker Derek Armstrong McNeil, creator of the documentary about homelessness in Seattle called The Road to Nicholsville. When we first ran the interview, the video was not available in wide release, but that has since changed, and it is now available for streaming on Amazon. And I will have a link for that for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. The film goes in-depth with the residents of the homeless encampments that are called Nicholsville. Here's a clip where McNeil talks to a resident named John. I had some wealth at one time. I had some pretty decent wealth at one time. What I realized today, what I was doing back then, is I created this beautiful shell around my life. People looked at this guy, John Ward, and said, you know what, this guy's got a restaurant, he's you know, a fisherman diver, he's got a Harley, you know, Harley Davidson motorcycle shop, I mean, this guy's got Corvettes. He's always out somewhere eating dinner. I mean, this guy is somebody I want to be like. But um, nobody realized that I was living a life which I call empty castles. Empty castles is I had all this neat stuff, but nobody realized I went home alone every night. I walked out of Seattle Airport. I took two pages off and one cell phone off and dropped them in the trash can. And it took about two years for anybody from Alaska to find me. Derek Armstrong McNeil, uh, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to start with what Nicholsville is. Uh, pretty much everybody in the Seattle area knows that there's a homeless problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen the tent encampments, uh, most notably the jungle. Um, but Nicholsville is different from that. And, and I want to get into your reasons for making the film in just a second. But first, just tell us what Nicholsville is. Nicholsville uh, was originally dubbed Nicholsville after Greg uh, Nichols, um, the Seattle mayor at the time. And it was sort of a jab at him for uh, helping along these tent encampments. So it was meant as, as a disparaging like a Hooverville kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, towards him. And uh, they started as tent cities, but the one that I, I, I covered in the film was sort of the original tiny house village version of it. So it was, you know, what most of us would effectively think is a shanty town. It was the first time they had moved from a tent city to an actual community of little tiny houses. And it was a experiment at the time, which has since been deemed a success for what it does in this sort of transitional area, this gray area between being on the street and and being in low-income housing. And so it was the first one. It was probably the most grit, the grittier one of all of them because now they're much cleaner. They have better bathroom facilities at the time. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of tossed on a hill next to the freeways near the uh, International District with porta-potties and... Uh, it was like a miners' camp, really. It was Tenth and Dearborn, I think, is right. the address yeah. that shows yeah. up in the film. And what year did you begin filming there? Twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Late twenty fifteen. Yeah. So you know, you do corporate films and ads. You shot short films mm-hmm. on different topics. Yeah. So then, I am wondering, what prompted you? to do a documentary about Nicholsville? Well, at the time, I wasn't really looking to do a documentary. I was trying to transition from my old career as a, an advertising art director and and software designer into uh, filmmaking. It, was, it had always been a passion of mine. And I was looking for writers and actors to sort of like start doing shooting uh, short scenes and develop a reel and sort of get connected with that environment and slowly build towards fictional narrative work. Uh, But I kept seeing this news story again and again about Nicholsville and how it would be moving and the the local neighborhood that they were moving to were all in an uproar. It was a classic not-in-my-neighborhood sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so 
I, initially, it didn't catch my attention as I was looking for something to do, but it just kept repeating. And then there was, I remember this one morning as I was drinking my coffee and sort of passively listening to the news, I saw this picture on the screen of the pink tents. And this was just prior to the encampment that I went and filmed. Or is this this ocean of pink tents? And it was my first exposure to that. And if you go Google it, you'll find out it was actually pretty common. There was a lot of them at the time. But that struck me. It struck me because the uniformity struck me. And it, and it, I, it occurred to me at that moment that it was a community. It was no longer tents here and there, homeless people here and there. It was no longer this nebulous cloud of people struggling out there. That It, it was an actual organized community, to me, which to me was significant. It was uh, – it was – it was kind of sad, and it, I was like, boy, we've reached a point now. The problem has reached a point where it's highly organized and controlled and uniform. It's a community now, which is kind of scary in a way. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to dismiss people just sort of wandering around on the side of the freeway. It's not easy to dismiss, at least for me, actual neighborhoods, if you will, of homeless people. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the colors, and that's actually something that's very striking in the film, too. Yeah. And I would imagine just because of your art direction background yeah. that that would be and, – and I should mention that the film was very visually striking. Um, was that one of the first things that kind of drew you as a Absolutely. subject? Absolutely. Yeah, know? yeah. So as a, as an artist, I, I tend to be drawn to things that most people would view as ugly. And I, I tend to see the beauty in ordinary, ordinary objects and everyday things as it is, you know, and I'll see something like this little tiny house village of pink huts, which to most people represents a lot of negative things. But to me, I couldn't help but see how beautiful it was. And so from an executional standpoint, it was an opportunity for me to show the world uh, the beauty that I see, uh, and that's the great thing about being an artist is you get to show the world, the world, your own worldview visually, not just politically or socially, but visually how you take in the world and then share that with everyone else. Like, wow, here's something that's beautiful and what we thought was not beautiful. But it was also, it was also I saw it as an opportunity, and this is how I transitioned to decide I wanted to do this documentary as opposed to continue on looking for fictional narrative. When I saw that. I felt like a moment was happening in Seattle where we were at a turning point, and I felt I needed to capture that. And that's why I sort of dove into it. Like I needed to capture this sort of what I viewed as a pivotal moment in the city's history where we're going from one type – homelessness as this thing we kind of sort of think about to a full-blown community and communities. That's And I wanted to capture that moment, and I saw the opportunity – in the little pink huts, which were also beautiful, but at the same time, it gave me something to visually anchor the story in. Right. It's a visual that'll stick in people's heads. You know, ideally, that's the idea. So people used to ask me, "Why didn't you go out and do it in the jungle?" And this, or why didn't you do this and that? And I, and my answer is, from a very practical standpoint, as an artist, those things. You know, if I shot them there, you would never have a sense of place. It would just mm-hmm. always be somewhere decrepit and scary and weird. But at the Nicholsville, there's something. There's an odd charm about it visually, and that. I saw that as a great opportunity to anchor this idea into people's minds and to fixate it in their heads because there's a a visual image for them to attach it to. And I like what you say about how this really is a turning point, uh, I think, for us in the Puget Sound region in terms of the way that we're discussing this. It's very much a cultural moment. Um, There are five people, by my count, that you profile in this film, give or take. There there are a couple others who have smaller uh, uh, stories. But they tell very, very personal stories. They really open up to 
to you. What did you need to do as a filmmaker to gain the trust of yeah. people to really be willing to open up because you you have a, a couple of, of moments where, where you can see tears forming in their eyes yeah. these, these very painful stories that these people are telling to you on camera so how was the process for you to really get people to to, to open up to you well it was sort of twofold my my method if you will uh, which at the time I didn't think that thing through a lot, to be honest. Uh, I just kind of like went for it and studied cinematography and other filmmaking things along the way. Uh, but one was I, you know, I'm really good at people one-on-one sitting down with them and having conversation and uh, people know that they, they know, they can generally tell if you're disingenuous, they can get a sense if you have an agenda. All people have that sort of, you know, they can tell if you've got something up your sleeve. And so first off, I think they know that I'm, you have to be genuinely interested in these people. You have to be genuinely a kind person because if you're not, they'll know. And there's no method that can work around that. And I, and I was just very honest with them. And I said, you, you know, this is what I want to do. I'm not out here to, you know, make a money, make money off you. God knows I haven't. I've lost a lot of money making this film. You know, How much have you put in, if you don't mind I put in like 20000 a gear mm. and over a year and a half of my time. So yeah. if you were to quantify it like a legitimate job, it'd be like a $150,000 project. Mm. Uh, but uh, all at my own expense. Um, so I assured them that it was not for personal gain. Necessarily. And I, I said, look, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, I do want to be a filmmaker and I want to do that. I do have my personal reasons, but I'm not here to talk to you because I want to use you. I'm very straight with people and direct. And so I think that puts people at ease when you just, you just say what's on everyone's mind and just blurt it out. And then you can have an open, honest conversation. Right. Um, the, uh, and so, and I'd say, I wouldn't, and so that's the first, second thing is I would never repeat a take. I would always just, you know, I would never tell them what the questions are going to be. I'd never repeat a take. So everything they say would, was exactly the first response and honest response. Um, cause I, I was more interested in getting a legitimate and authentic response than I was about the narrative, which made it much difficult, very difficult for me later on to edit it. I can imagine. Yeah. It was uh, very difficult cause I didn't plan as well. And I, in the future I am planning a little bit more, but still a loose framework I think is best because I still don't want to take second takes. I still want to get the most honest response because that's what makes the audience connect is if they're watching and hearing an honest response from a technical standpoint i keep i have a very very small thumbprint i bring in a very small camera it's a it's a dslr camera film i had just like one little camera a shotgun mic and that was it Mm. and me and so you're very nimble and in fact there is a scene where you follow one of the residents into the jungle and you go through the The, the fencing there it was kind of a kind of a tense moment, but you wouldn't have been able to do that if you had had right. a big you know if, if you had had a crew for example crew or cinema camera I think uh, the, the notion that you need a crew to do a film like this to me is ridiculous i mean uh, i don't that's completely unnecessary I mean how much gear and people do you need to interview a human being really well you have a, a musician background as yeah. we were discussing before we started here so it's a DIY thing right right yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so it's, it's part, part of that aesthetic. And I'm comfortable with fixing the audio later, you know, right. because of my musician's background. I've worked in go. Pro Tools, et cetera. And so I'm comfortable with boosting up the bass to make it sound like there was a preamp in my audio, that kind of thing. You know, all those little sure, tricks yeah, you yeah, do. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, yeah, I think it's just a small thumbprint. And, and, you know, and that's the way I like it is if a million dollars fell in my lap tomorrow, I would not use that million dollars to make a million dollar film. I would use it to make 
five smaller films and keep things very small, you know, because uh, there's only in my mind, there's re- to tell this type of story, you really don't need a lot. Right. A theme that comes up uh, with most of your subjects is that most people are only a paycheck or a catastrophic illness away from winding up homeless themselves. Yeah. Um, I imagine this was a point that you were hoping to drive home. Well, it was, yeah, it was a theory that I was sort of trying to prove out in this because that, that is a big thing. Like I remember I was listening to a radio show and someone had mentioned, well, you're on, this is before, you know, back in 2014 and the, the, you know, the idea, the subject was starting to swish around in my head on a daily basis. And I remember someone on a radio show saying, we're only a paycheck away. And, and I thought about it and I thought about all my life and the people I'd known. And I thought, yeah, you know, we, many of us are truly, a lot of people, I think, who have the appearance of a middle-class life, and Colin ended up echoing all this. Yeah, and so let's talk about Colin. Colin is an older man uh, who talks about being a professional before he became homeless. He talks about having a stock portfolio. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Colin. Colin, I wish I could have I, I wish I could have gone deeper into Colin. I wish I could have. I was going to do a feature-length film and cut it for a variety of reasons, but in the feature-length version, he had sent me pictures. I was going to use pictures from them in their previous lives. And, and I should mention that this film clocks in just under 50 minutes. Yeah, so I wanted to do something much longer, but I cut, I cut it because of, of Desiree's story, um, and I didn't want to do harm to her and her son by by focusing on that too much. Um, how it ends for her is in the credits. But yeah. uh, So Colin... Um, he was a Marine. He's an engineer. He's educated. He's smart. He's intelligent. He used to live a upper middle class life. He had an investment portfolio. He's he lived in port in uh, Florida and built boats. He was a what he said he was a mechanic in the Marines during the Bay of Pigs operation. Oh, was yeah. <laughs> that didn't come up in the film. That's no, there's so yeah. much about it that all of these people, especially Colin, that we don't get that deep into, and ended up being a something shorter that was like a fast clip that, you know, I could breeze through really quickly and get some points and get out. But yeah, he, and he sent me these pictures of him when he was in Florida and younger, hanging out with his, his honeys and the bikinis (laughs) and just living the life, man. And, and he he never, ever could have looked forward and dreamed that one day he'd be in this tent down on the corner of I-5 and 405 it's just unimaginable. I thought, gosh, if I mean, it's not. It doesn't take much of a leap of imagination to think. Well, how many people right now who think they're living the life and they're set, you know, because of a, cer- a, a variety of circumstances, mm-hmm. they'll find themselves at sixty years old sitting in a tent somewhere because he was at that age and circumstances where he did all the right things in life, and yet. Things went terribly wrong, you know, and, and there are all types of homeless people. Their, their lives are as complex and diverse as people who are not homeless, right? Right. And that actually brings in the addiction uh, subject we, mm. we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, and, you know, I think people assume that a lot of the plurality, I think people assume the, the plurality of, of homeless people are addicts. Um, but a resident that you profile named Ryan talks about this. Mm-hmm. So did you yourself have the same assumptions about homeless people being addicts and alcoholics going into this? Well, I assume that a certain portion were in as much as I assume a certain portion of, portion of every community are addicts. 
I mean, in any cul-de-sac, I'm sure you can find any 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 group of people, no matter where they are. I believe you'll you you can pick out certain characters, and uh, you'll you'll find people who are secretly secretly alcoholics or secretly addicted to painkillers. And and I assumed that this community was no different, in that there were people who were struggling with addiction and some that weren't, um, which more or less turned out to be the case. I couldn't break it down scientifically and tell you what the percentage was, but there were people who struggled with substance abuse there, but they were very careful not to show that as addicts are. Right. Well, did you specifically try not to use them as subjects? Or at the very least, if any of the characters that you talked to were addicts, it certainly didn't come up in the film. I chose people for who they were as as people from their backgrounds and let it play out as it did. Whether they turned out to be addicts or not wasn't so that wasn't a conscious choice. Exactly. Okay. So I was more interested in showing that these people come from diverse backgrounds, right. that, that, that although they're here at this point in time, they came from many different places and lives. And if addiction came into it, it did. If it didn't, it didn't. But I didn't want to have any agenda one way or the other. You know, I wanted to be I wanted to take an honest look because I was curious myself. Yeah. And, and you did. Um, so before we go, I just want to ask you about something that you said at a recent screening of your film uh, about the government's role in addressing the homeless problem. You said that you didn't think the government had a role to play in that. I th- well, I, here's what I think. I think, uh, and my my opinion is sort of always evolving, but I think that the reason I say that, and I've said it be, uh, several times at screenings, is I think there's a lot of emphasis, there's too much emphasis on the mayor and what is the mayor doing to solve this problem. I, I don't think it's realistic to assume that any one person or governmental body or any institution or body can solve such a complex problem. I think it takes a team effort, which will involve government and will mm. involve lots of community organizations, of which there are many. Sure. And I think so. I think it's wrong. to. So you're not f- saying that government has no role to play. I'm, right. Okay. I'm not saying government has no role to play. That 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 comment was a response to my perception that – the mayor is sort of being uh, – the mayor's office in our local city government is being yelled at to solve the problem, and I don't think that's really realistic. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think the government is necessarily capable of solving such a complex problem. And ultimately, what I hope when people see this film, and I think it's worked sometimes, is that people feel like it, it's their community and they feel invested to help their community members and help the – and to, to pitch in and help solve this problem – on their own, you know, uh, you know what what are you doing? So you can ask the government, what is the government doing with this problem? Well, I think every person looked at themselves and say, well, what are what am I doing to help this problem? Because this is not an abstraction. This is a problem that affects me and affects everyone. What can I do to help? You know, so in my case, I made a film. My daughter's case, she's a little girl. She makes a bags full of snack to hand off to people on the off ramps. Mm. And somewhere between those two extremes are many things people can do. And if everyone pitches in and, and the government can, and the mayor continues to attempt to figure out what to do, we can all collectively address the problem. But I, I think it's wrong to assume any one governmental body can solve everything for us. I think, you know. It just seems unrealistic to me. Well, as you say, you made a film, and it is a good one. Uh, Derek Armstrong McNeil, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show, man. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this special edition of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. Thanks, you guys, for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.